Lord, it is so good to be with you in your presence. Thank you for attending to bodies all around the globe. Some have met many, many, many hours ago, and some are still yet to meet this morning, this evening. Lord, and we are grateful to be a part of that. And as Trevor mentioned earlier, we, we don't take that for granted, especially now after this last 15 or so months. Lord, thank you for bringing us through some of these things. Um, light at the end of the tunnel is approaching, but we also know that there are many around the world who are struggling. Many countries right now are having a very difficult time, and, and we, know, we know what death means. Uh, we do. And it, it, it breaks our hearts for those who do not know you. And we soar with joy, even though it's hard, with those who do know you. So, Lord, we pray that you would continue to send workers, continue to send Christians, even from where they are in their place, whether it be in, in Indian, India or uh, Taiwan or wherever some of the big places are, Lord, and that you would send your believers there to their neighbors, to their co-workers that they would encourage them, that they would strengthen them, just as we've had to do for many, many months uh, this, this past year. So, Lord, we pray that you would do an amazing work. May you send revival through some of these opportunities and struggles, hardships that we've had. Lord, we're thankful. Lord, but we knew, do know that you've given us great blessings here, certainly this body in Greenville, United States. It's, it's, it's a real pleasure. Uh, to, to serve you here, Lord. But don't let us get grow uh, numb at this time. Lord, fill us up with the, the, the sensitivity that we need. Fill us up with the urgency that we need, that your gospel would go forward boldly with great grace and mercy leading the way because your son lived a perfect life. He died a horrific death. Lord, and you rose him in power and victory over that death, hell, and the grave. And he's risen. And he's our king. And Lord, he's not left us alone. He sent us your Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit to us. That we would be empowered. That we would be convicted. That we would be a strong presence in spite of ourselves to the world around us. May we show great grace holiness and mercy and compassion to those around us, even this day, this week ahead of us. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for this time, and thank you for the gifts of singing, the gifts of your word. We don't hold those back. Lord, be with Neil now. We thank you for him and the gifts that you've given him, Lord, as he brings this word to us. Fill our hearts with joy and knowledge and hope and new mercies. Lord, and we thank you so much for Daphne Jane Johnson, uh, Lord, for her birth this week, for Anna and Kenny, Mama and Daddy. Lord, help them as they figure out now life with two children and how that goes. Give them much grace. We're thankful, Lord, and we are glad to be called your people, and we are thankful that we can call you our God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You are going to want to grab a Bible uh, in front of you, or if you brought it with you, or a phone in your pocket, or something, to go to John chapter 6. We have a significant 
portion of scripture to go through this morning, and we're going to refer to it often, so you're going to want to pull that out. We're going to start in verse 25 of John 6, and we'll read till almost the end, skipping a few verses. I'll let you know as we get there, but keep that out with you. John chapter 6, starting in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him and said, because he said, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have, I have now come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to the Father unless he who sent him draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life is the world, for the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Skip down to verse 66. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the word of the Lord. If you haven't been with us, we've been going through the Gospel of John, and we come to John chapter 6, and believe it or not, that was about half of it. It's the second longest chapter in the whole New Testament. 
And so we have our work cut out for us today. But the nice thing about John is, you may have noticed this already, John really likes to take one idea in a chapter and talk about it all through the whole way. So the Synoptic Gospels will take five or six stories, five or six teaching things and push them all together in one chapter. John likes one idea in one chapter. And we see this, Jesus says over and over again, the point of this whole chapter is, he is the bread of life. Everything either leads up to that statement or explains that statement in the rest of the passage, that Jesus is the bread of life. We didn't read uh, the feeding of the 5,000. It was the beginning of the chapter, the first 15 verses. But John says the feeding of the 5,000 was actually a sign. That's what he always calls miracles, signs. Because for John's miracles uh, signify something. They point us to something, to some greater reality. And that reality was this, that Jesus is the bread of life. Not that he gives bread, but that he is the bread. But here's what I want you to see. This chapter is fascinating because in that miracle, we see that there were 5,000 men. They didn't count women. Sorry, ladies. I didn't make up the rules first century. Uh, But what we know is that more than likely with 5,000 men, there's probably 20,000 people that were fed by five loaves of bread and two fish in this miracle. But then at the end of the chapter... There's 11 people left. The beginning of the chapter, 20,000 people, enough people to fill up the Bilo Center. I know, I'm holding out. I like the the original. (laughs) 20,000 people, more than enough to fill up that huge stadium. In the end, a small Bible study. The beginning, a megachurch. And so we have to look at this passage John lays out for us and ask this question, what's happened here? Why have... Thousands and thousands and thousands of people walked away to the point we have 11 faithful disciples left from 20,000 in the end. And so what I want us to do is to look at this passage and frame it this way. John gives us two reasons to walk away from Jesus and then ultimately one reason to stay. Two reasons to walk away from Jesus, ultimately one reason to stay. Reason number one to walk away, Jesus doesn't meet our expectations We walk away because Jesus doesn't meet our expectations. First in this passage, we see people walk away because Jesus won't be their political savior. If you look back at verse 14 and 15, uh, Jesus has done this miracle. He's fed the 5,000, and they're like, this is incredible. And it says they try to come and take him by force to make him king, but Jesus kind of slips away because he doesn't want anything to do with that expectation that he has on their life. But you have to realize they start thinking, okay, if this guy can take this Hebrew Happy Meal from this little boy and turn it into food that can feed 20,000 people, what might it be like if we could get him in office? What might it be like if we could have this political pawn in our back pocket to do our bidding on the front lines? Goodbye, Roman oppression. That's the end of this. He's a little rough around the edges. He's talking about you know drinking blood and uh, all this sort of thing. We can work with that, but think about this platform. He can literally end world hunger. Like, actually do it. Think about what we could accomplish. Think about what we could do. And so they try to make him king, but Jesus won't meet this expectation, even with the praise of 20,000 people and the promise of incredible power. Second, people walk away because he won't be their personal chef. We picked up in verse 25. What's just happened there is Jesus has done this miracle on one side of the Sea of Galilee, walked across the Sea of Galilee, met his disciples in the boat, and gone to the other side. The crowd comes through a more conventional route on the boats on the water and meets him over there. And they're like, hey, Jesus, what was your mode of transportation for getting to the other side of the lake? But Jesus immediately says, I know why you're here. You're hungry again. You want breakfast. 
You want me to reproduce this miracle? Here's what you have to know. For us, we make money to buy stuff. We, we use phrases like, oh, I've just got to put food on the table. But for most of us, some but not most, that's not the reality of our lives. But for a first century Jew, it's estimated that about 85% of their income went towards food. And so for them, a savior, a king who can make food, oh, all of a sudden you've doubled my income almost. All of a sudden this gets very convenient and life gets much easier. And so they come back and they say, Jesus, hey, you know, if you're really God, you remember God in the Old Testament, he gave manna like day after day after day. Let's do this again. But Jesus won't meet this expectation. He tells them, I haven't come to give bread, but I am the bread. They miss what Jesus has come to do, and many walk away because Jesus doesn't miss their expectations. Here's the point. There is so much catastrophic relational damage in our lives because of unmet expectations. It doesn't matter if it's a marriage or a parenting or a friendship or a workplace or whatever it is. I hesitate to say nothing is more catastrophic, but it's along the lines of the most catastrophic thing in our relationships is unmet expectations. So I'll give you one example from my life. I married a girl who grew up in a family whose dad like took care of all the automotive things in the house. Like if there's an oil change that needed to happen, he took the car. If like the light came on, it's like, Hey dad, the lights on. He took the car, you know, that sort of thing. So we got, she married, unfortunately for her, uh, someone who doesn't know the difference between the battery and the engine. I got, I've nothing. It stresses me out to fill up tires with air. Like, I don't know when they pop. I don't know. Like, I don't know. And so we're like, pretty early into marriage and Jen's like, Hey, the like light is on in my car. Can you take it in? And I'm like, Oh no, that's terrible. They like revoked your driver's license. Like what happened? <laughs> I'm not taking your, I don't like that. I'm not doing that. And so we had a healthy discussion about that. Uh, <laughs> and, and what happened is you laugh, uh, because it's funny now. It wasn't funny at the time. Uh, <laughs> There are all these circumstances in life where we come in with expectations, and when they're unmet, the results are catastrophic. Whole relationships fall apart because of unmet expectations, and the same can happen with Jesus. If we come to Christ and don't realize what he wants to do, and instead come with this uh, whole litany of expectations for him in our lives to give us health, to give us a marriage, to give us kids, to give us success, to give us money, to take us where we really want to go in life. All of a sudden, we don't end up with a God. We end up with a business partner who works with us and works for us. But Jesus won't play that game. He doesn't meet those expectations like we expect him to. But what I want you to see is we can really err on both sides of this equation, we can over-expect from Jesus. We can expect him to do things in this life that he never promised to do. He never promised to give us health or comfort or wealth. He, ne- he never did. But on the other hand, we can under-expect from Jesus. We can live our lives in this dangerous place where we have no expectations for Jesus to do anything in our lives. Just because he doesn't want to meet the expectations that you might have for him doesn't mean he doesn't have expectations for what he wants to do in your life. We just sang it at the beginning of this service. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do. If with his love he befriends thee. Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you need to stop right now in this service and just go, Do I have any expectations at all for a living God to work in my life? 
This is all about what it means to be the bread of life. You think about what it means to be bread. Bread satisfies our deepest needs. Jesus wants to satisfy your deepest needs. You know, we think about bread as like an appetizer or like a vessel to get like a dip into our mouths or a hamburger or something like that. For, for a first century Jew, bread was life. It was staple diet, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. To survive was to eat bread, synonymous with life for them. And so when Jesus claims to be the bread of life, here's what he's saying, and they understood immediately, even if we miss it. I want to satisfy your deepest desires and needs. Your deepest desire to be truly known and truly loved, your deepest desire to be secure and to know that I'm not going to leave you, I satisfy those deepest desires and needs as the bread of life. Secondly, Jesus as the bread of life Wants, us to, wants to sustain us in our weakest moments. Jesus may not meet every expectation we have in life, but he does promise this. He'll never leave us or forsake us. And he'll sustain us even in the darkest times of our lives. There's this great moment at the beginning of this chapter, I wish we could have read all of it, where Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then the 12 disciples go to pick up the leftovers. You know how many baskets there are? Twelve. And the message is clear. (laughs) It starts off by Jesus saying, where are we going to find enough food to feed all these people? And they're like, where could we even get barely enough? And Jesus ends the miracle saying, I have more than enough. In this moment where you don't think I can meet this need, I have way more resources than are necessary to meet this need. And Jesus does the same for you. Keep that expectation for him in your life that even in your hardest, darkest moments, He has enough to sustain you. Have that expectation on Jesus that you can lean on him no matter what to see you through it. And then lastly, as the bread of life, we can expect Jesus to sanctify us into something beautiful. Listen to Colossians 1.22. He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I I love this picture. I think about like a like a marble statue. I have no idea what that process looks like, but I can imagine the chipping away and the polishing and the sanding down until you finally get to the end. That's what I think of when I read Colossians 1.22, that Jesus wants to present us holy and blameless, that we're like this unfinished product. And in our lives, no matter what we walk through, he's chipping away and sanctifying and polishing and changing until he can rip the cover off and show us to the Father and say, it's done. They're finished. And Father always says, you've done it again, Jesus. You've made them holy and blameless. You've sanctified them into something beautiful. So no matter what, this changes everything. We can hold on to Jesus. Instead of holding on to our expectations for health and comfort and relationships, whatever comes in life, we can think, I wonder what Jesus might be doing right now. I wonder what he might be changing in me. I wonder what he might be cultivating in me. I wonder what he might be transforming me into. Listen to what A.W. Pink says. Cultivate the holy habit of seeing the hand of God in everything that happens to you. He is the bread of life who wants to sanctify you into something beautiful. So first, Jesus won't meet our expectations. That's the first reason to walk away. The second reason to walk away is this. Jesus offends us with his teaching. 
He offends us with his teaching. One of the things that's consistently happening all throughout this chapter is Jesus is offending people with his teaching. Look back at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? And then after seemingly promoting cannibalism later in the chapter, John tells us verse 60, many of the disciples heard it and they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And the result is thousands of people walk away from Jesus because they just can't stomach this teaching. And the same happens today. If Jesus isn't offending us, we're probably not listening. He grinds against the core of who we are, the core of what our culture would say. And all across the world, we still rebel against what Jesus says because his teaching offends us. Whether it's about homosexuality or gender roles or abortion or whatever it is, Jesus' teaching is offensive. And maybe you're here this morning and one of those issues is big for you. I'm not trying to be dismissive at all when I talk about that. Those are huge issues that we should talk about. But let me just challenge you in a couple of ways if you're here and you're thinking about walking away from Jesus or you already have walked away from Jesus because of something offensive about his teaching. The first thing would be this. Let me encourage you to start with the core issues and work outward. I just want you to see the uh, illogical nature of saying something like, I can't follow Jesus because he offends me with his teaching about homosexuality or gender roles or whatever it is. We, We absolutely can't start there. Start here. Is Jesus the son of God who rose again from the dead or not? If not, who cares what he thinks? Who cares? If he is, those are huge issues to wrestle through. But he is who he said he is. And so I've got to figure out a way to mesh this. And it might be difficult and it might be hard and it might be offensive. But it's illogical and inconsistent to walk away from Jesus because he might offend us with something he teaches. He either is who he said he was or he isn't. The second thing I would encourage you to do is to realize that God isn't God if he always agrees with you. Tim Keller says it this way in his book, Reason for God. I'd highly recommend it to anyone with doubts or questions about Christianity. Listen to what he says. He says, now what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? Got off. If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a step for God, a God of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, just like in a real friendship or marriage, will you know that you've gotten a hold of the real God and not a figment of your imagination. To stay away from Christianity because part of the Bible's teaching is offensive to you assumes that if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that upset you. Does that belief make any sense? In other words, if God always agrees with you, then he's not God, you are. Of course he grinds against what we think. He's God. We're created. And so we submit to what he says and we wrestle with them even when they're difficult. But in the end, the most offensive thing that Jesus teaches in this passage is clear. And it's the same thing that's the most offensive to everybody sitting in this room and every human being that's ever walked the face of the earth. Three times Jesus says, verse 44, no one can come to the Father Unless he who sent him draws me, sent me draws him. 
Verse 63 is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. By far the most offensive thing that Jesus teaches, by far the biggest reason that people walk away from Christ is his unwavering insistence that human beings are totally unable to save themselves. The hardest pill to swallow in Christianity is not ultimately what Christians think about homosexuality or abortion or marriage or gender or any number of hard topics. The hardest pill to swallow is that God comes to earth and he reveals to us we have a need that we cannot meet. And that we are totally hopeless to come to God without him. So why Galatians 5 speaks of the offense of the cross. The offense of the cross is this. As human beings, we look at it and say, we're so bad, God had to die for us. We're so morally incapable of making our way to God. He had to send his son to be crucified, and it shouts from the mountaintops, human beings are totally unable to save themselves. And this is the most offensive thing that Jesus could possibly teach us. And so Jesus tells us over and over again, all across this passage, you think that you're good people coming to find God, but the reality is the only way you can be saved is if I'm God, come to find you. The only hope that you have is not that you'll make your way to God, but that God has made his way to you. And this statement digs to the depth of our hearts because in our sinful core, we reject the idea we cannot earn our standing with God. We like to think that our holiness is a, is a product of our uh, spiritual elbow grease. I can't remember where I heard that, but I love that phrase. That we uh, got down in, the, in the, you know, the thick of it, and we worked so hard. We made our way. We have the moralism. We have the family upbringing. We have the good church that we grew up in. We got to God, and Jesus grinds against that and offends us by saying, you're totally hopeless without me. No one can come to the Father, Jesus says, unless he draws him. We see this in verse 27. Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. The crowd hears that word work, and they latch onto it. Like, oh, finally, something to do, some way to earn it. And they say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? You're speaking our language. Just give us the formula. Give us the path. We'll figure it out. And Jesus says in that moment, you'll never come unless God makes it possible. So they walk away. They leave Jesus because he offends them and he threatens their moral ability. We do the same thing. We walk away. Because the hardest truth to swallow in Christianity is that we're hopeless apart from Christ. Which leads us to this last point. Two reasons to walk away from Jesus. One reason to stay. Because it's true. Only one reason to stay. Because it's true. We began with 20,000 followers. We have 11 remaining. And you can just kind of picture the scene that like everyone's back is turned toward Jesus. They're walking away, all these thousands of people exiting the Bilo Center, if you will. And 11 faithful disciples remain. And Jesus says, how about y'all? You too? And Peter says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Here's what I want you to realize about this statement from Peter. This isn't easy believism. 
This isn't Peter saying, oh, no doubt, Jesus, we're staying. This statement is Peter saying, Jesus, I'll be honest with you, we've thought about it. We've considered it. We've looked at other religions. We've looked at other ways to God. We've looked at other philosophies. We've looked at the world and tried to make sense of it in other ways. But in the end, we can't walk away. All of this is hard for us to hear too, but we can't walk away because you have the words of eternal life. And so we stay. We've considered the claims of Christianity. We're staying because even if they're hard to swallow, you have the words of eternal life. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, anyone who has any conceivable alternative to Jesus is not a Christian. So here's how maybe I would challenge you this morning. Maybe that's the way you finally come to Christ. That you look at every other possible religion, philosophy, way of life, that you look at the world and say, what makes the most sense of what I'm experiencing around me? Maybe you don't have every question answered. Maybe you still have some things that offend you. Maybe you still have some doubts. But in the end, you have to say with Peter, you have the words of eternal life. To where else would I go? And so finally, we have to ask, as we come to this table, how do we receive this eternal life? If we're not going to walk away, but instead stay with Jesus, how do we receive it? One of the main things that keeps us from kind of getting this passage, thinking about bread and food and all this kind of thing, is that we don't think about food in the same way the original audience did. I'll put it this way. There were no grocery stores in the first century. They were much closer to the food source than we were. So we go into the grocery store, pick anything we want. We don't think about where it came from. We don't think about how it was packaged. We don't think about who made it. We don't think about what had to be sacrificed to make it happen. We just kind of buy it and we eat it. They're much closer to the food source. So here's what they know. If I want to eat, something else has to die. Either I kill the fish, it dies, or I die. I kill the wheat and make bread, and it dies, or I die. They totally understood that concept. And so they knew When Jesus was saying, I am the bread of life, he was saying to them, here's the reality. Either I die or you die. I die or you die. My life for yours. And he lays this out for us. And he says in verse 34, how do we get it? They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here's how we receive this eternal life. Jesus dies so that we might live. We come and believe. We come. Even with all of our unmet expectations, we come knowing our utter hopelessness before God. We come and we see the offense of the cross and the bread of life who lays down his life for our friends. And we believe because we say to Christ, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Let me pray for us. Father, we are incredibly thankful for this passage. Jesus, we're thankful for you as the bread of life that you come to us and you say, as your bread, I die so you live. And we come to this table now, Jesus, to feed on you as our life, knowing that without you we are utterly hopeless before God. And we come expectantly, Jesus. We come expectantly for what you might want to do in our lives. And we trust this simple means of grace that we take this morning, that you might transform us through it. We pray in your name. Amen.
come to this table, there's a couple of things that Neil said in the sermon. I'll just 